and welcome to the Bunker Daily. I'm Ros Taylor. When I worked for a well-known national newspaper during the noughties, I had a number of colleagues who, on principle, hated Tories. In practice, that meant they could never become friends with someone who voted Conservative, and they were usually quite adamant about that. Sometimes these people also disliked Lib Dems, sometimes they tolerated them. So political polarisation is not a new thing, but it is taking new and perhaps more vicious and extreme forms. With me to talk about that are two women who, together with Laura Osborne, have written a book about polarisation. It's called Poles Apart. Ali Goldsworthy is a former deputy chair of the Lib Dems. She was there while the party was in coalition government. She's now a Sloan Fellow at Stanford and CEO of the Depolarisation Project. Hello, Ali. Welcome to the bunker. It's lovely to be here. Hi, Roz. Alexandra Chesterfield is a behavioural scientist. Hello, Alexandra. Hi, Roz. How are you? I'm really excited to be here. You three have different political backgrounds, don't you? Was that deliberate? Was it deliberate? No, I think we all started off very much, first of all, as colleagues. Um, So we all worked together at WITCH, um, the Consumers Association. That's how we met. We had many similarities. We loved going out for lunches, many drinks, and we bonded over how do we make uh, the UK a better place for consumers. So that's what first and foremost, um, I think, brought us together. And then, yes, secondly, then I guess on getting to know each other, we did realise we had slightly different worldviews. Ali, I was going to say, would you add anything to that? No, I think what's, what's important, and we'll come back to this, I'm sure, when we talk about how to solve uh, polarisation, is that the identity through which we first met each other was one where we had something in common, trying to make consumers more powerful, or as women, working out how to navigate an organisation, or mums, and all of those things were there alongside or before our political identities became very mm. obvious or, or were primed into the front of what we were doing. Ali, as you point out, humans like joining groups. It's how we define ourselves, one of the ways in which we do so. And in the last few hundred years in parts of the world, we've often joined political parties, although that's an increasingly unusual thing to do. Political parties are the engines of democratic politics. Even in China, where there's effectively only one party, they represent a way to get your voice heard and advance your prospects. But they can also drive us apart, can't they? Yeah, they can drive us apart. And and I suppose when we talk about polarisation, it's important for people to understand that, that that doesn't mean that you're always going to the extremes. It's how tightly you hold on to your identity and how hard you find it to talk to people with a different identity. So it, it's not necessarily that I hold very radically extreme views or I would have done when I was active in party politics. So I really was quite partisan, to be honest. You know, I was a Lib Dem and I, I thought by default that anything that was suggested by the Lib Dems was likely to be better than anybody else, which is clearly not always the case. And in fact, quite often <laughs> was not the case, more often than it should have been, um, uh, to be honest with you. And and you're right, you know, like the group, for our tendency to form groups is a, a natural, almost survival instinct. And then since about the French Revolution in 17 or 1789-ish, we've begun to apply real political labels to that, which has just reinforced those identities. Once you give it a name, like it becomes something else that people can grasp onto, or you give it symbols and party logos or memorabilia and all of that kind of stuff. Those are more recent formalized phenomenon, which is why some of this very partisan or politically partisan based identities are manifesting in in new ways. There's other reasons for it too. I'm sure we'll come on to them around social media and things, but that is a new bit of a phenomenon. I've sometimes been very close to joining a party, but I haven't since I was a student. And that's because I kind of know that if I had that allegiance and that connection, I'd start making different judgments and I'd lose something in my independence of mind. 
On the other hand, I was very clearly on one side of the biggest political divide in the UK in recent years, Remain and Leave, obviously. And at the time, that felt like the right identity to adopt and that it I felt it was the only way to foster the kind of solidarity that might have led to a better outcome. But was it? Oh. <laughs> so, well, I mean, it's, it's quite hard to do the counterfactual, right? You can't go and live your life and be like, well, if I hadn't done that, would things have turned out differently? And, and Ros, you are great. And obviously this podcast is hugely influential, but I am not certain on your own, you would have changed the course of history in terms of how the Brexit situation has turned out, despite you being no, indeed not. <laughs> like, if if only from my point of view, I think Ros touched on a really good point that when um, you know one of the reasons why you didn't formally join a political party because you were worried about the extent to which your own you know worldviews might be by shaped by the, the group that you joined, and that's definitely what the research suggests that when we do identify with a group, whether it's you know uh, can be any kind of group, so you know nation, gender, could be political party, uh, etc., we do tend to adopt its predominant views. And that that can then make it very hard to change our minds later because our, our identity, so who we think we are, is attached so much to the to the group. And it can be really costly when you do change your minds, especially if you've committed to that that position in in public. Yeah, you quote the former Lib Dem leader, Joe Swinson, in book, and you, she says the cost of changing your mind is quite high. Why mm. is it so high? And is there any way we could make it less high? Mm. I think cycle, I think there's probably a couple of reasons. So psychologically, it feels un- uncomfortable when we change our mind. We like to be consistent with what we've said or, or done previously. So it just feels, it just feels psychologically uncomfortable, but it's kind of, it kind of almost feels painful to think something different. So we like to be consistent. So psychologically, it has a cost. Also socially, as you implied, if we have our own, own view and we change our mind, it's less costly than if we have to let down our group. Essentially, we, you know, we, we want to belong. We don't want to be ostracized. We don't want to be looked different from what our other teammates or, or, or group members, um, think as well. But then I guess externally in the environment, um, you know, think about the media reaction to when, politicians do change their minds in in public some of the headlines are you know u-turn or you know, flip-floppers so it, it, it reputationally it doesn't fit the, the perception of a strong leader who is always consistent and and always does what they say yeah i think the only thing i'd add to that is also politics does tend to reward loyalty very often you know so if you look for example in the book we have a and i have to say i was inspired by isabel hardman who is is excellent on this topic as well um but uh, a guy called alan mack who's a, a conservative mp there are people from each party i'm sure i could pick out from this but he does have a tendency to ask particularly toadying questions in parliament which is a completely useless way to scrutinize the government yet he gets rewarded by promotions and i think he's now a junior government whip and that's not done on talent as a parliamentarian, I don't think. It's done on ability to toe the party line and make people feel good because everybody likes that. I think the other thing that maybe that this is where you want to come on to, we don't argue that the existence of political parties is a bad thing. That's a tremendously, in my opinion, quite a naive thing to do. You know, they have a, a very important function in a democracy to try and help, you know, aggregate views and to allow people to make, you know, clear voter choice. That's that's really important. And Joe also you mentioned Joe Swinson she's talked to us about how useful having experts that you can rely on as having broadly similar philosophical outlooks to you help inform the votes that you you take as a, as a politician so we aren't anti-party in any way they can be really useful but there is a thing when you rely on them too much for your judgments or who you like or don't like or if you automatically are conflicted with people from a different worldview or political view that's pretty fracturing for society 
One of the interesting things you point out is that people presented with the same facts, but who have different pre-existing opinions will kind of interpret the facts to shape their own opinions. And you link that with Brexit, don't you? And the way that facts just, you, you imagine that facts will cut through to inform political decisions, but they don't always do so. You're absolutely right. Um, and that's a, that's quite a difficult problem to solve. So I think most of us think that we evaluate information objectively, but in, in reality, we, we really struggle to do so, particularly if an objective assessment puts us out of step with their group. One of the main psychological explanations for it is something called confirmation bias, where we, where we typically pay attention to or seek out information and then also evaluate it and process it in a way that confirms our prior beliefs. And exactly like the example you talked about in the book, so Brexit, but also there's been studies done on the death penalty, on climate change, is that when you present people with different prior beliefs, present the same information to them, they will read that and, and process it in a way to confirm what they think already. And it's a it's another reason why often when you're you're trying to, I guess, influence or, or understand or change someone's mind, why often using facts doesn't work. Because what it can do is it simply makes people think of all the reasons why they hold their prior belief, which then can make that prior belief more extreme. So you end up unintentionally polarising people uh, even more prior to giving them that, that information. Alex, that's tremendously interesting and really useful. I think there's two other things, given people who listen to this podcast and where it's come from, that they might find particularly useful, which is this affects everybody or almost everybody. And we like to think that we update our beliefs based on very rational things. And it is facts that change us. And it's other people who aren't persuaded by facts. But that also is not the case. The the odds are, to anybody listening to this, that you too change your facts much more based on feelings and allegiances rather than on facts that come through that's that that is the case at almost everybody and I would include myself in that I'm just more cognizant of it I hope the other thing is that people tend to think that rigidity and cognitive rigidity is particularly acute in the other side and that they are more flexible and there's some fantastic studies that have been done by a woman called Lior Zomograd at the University of Cambridge which actually shows that cognitive inflexibility applies to people in in almost every political position And it's dependent on how tightly they associate with their group and how much that is part of their identity, rather than whether they are extremist left-wing or right-wing, or even if they have particularly authoritarian views, which was what people used to think was the case. So, Roz, when you were talking about part of the reason that you hadn't joined a political party as you thought it would really make you struggle to be independent, you know, Alex has talked about that, it's also likely to make you more cognitively rigid and find it harder to update your beliefs. What did your time close to the coalition government teach you about polarisation? Because you had a good view of what was going on with David Cameron as PM, Nick Clegg as deputy PM. Were the seeds sown, if you like, do you think, of the polarisation then that led to the Brexit referendum in 2016? I think the seeds were sown well, well before that. Uh, to be honest with you, I'm not sure that they helped sometimes. Um, part of the reason, I mean, this is, a, this is not a particularly British thing, is that junior coalition partners tend to get absolutely rinsed in elections afterwards because their voters think that they sold out on a lot and because they have a, a less powerful position, they are the junior partner. That really does tend to be the case. It's, it's highly unusual for a junior coalition partner in the position of the Lib Dems to gain ground. Also, it is unusual for them to do quite as badly as the Lib Dems did afterwards in 2015. And I think there's all sorts of reasons to do with that. Quite a lot of them uh, are about the betrayal on tuition fees, you know, and some of the other decisions that were were taken, how wholeheartedly people went along with the economic agenda. And, and that 
kind of thing. So I'm certain some of that was some of these seeds were for me personally sown then. But in terms of how we were polarizing, I think that goes back far further. And certainly alongside Brexit, the the very successful Leave campaign, they really started planning for that in the late 80s and early 90s, a group at, at Oxford University. And that does show that it requires persistence sometimes for these movements to flourish and to come out into the open. Um, but no, I don't think, you know, there's an awful lot that you can hold Nick Clegg and the coalition government responsible for. I'm not sure the decision to hold a referendum, you definitely can't. And the fact it was lost, I, I don't think is particularly their fault. There are, are many other things they are capable, they are culpable for. Alexandra, I wanted to ask you about the idea of deliberative democracy, because this gets a really good press in some circles. It's where people are brought together to talk over a difficult issue in depth and try to reach a conclusion. And political scientists often are very, very keen on it. They say it breaks down divisions and allows people to talk freely. But you raise some problems with it in Poles Apart. It's not always the panacea that it can seem. No, I think you're you're right, Ros. And interestingly, actually, I was involved um, back in my early career working on some of the research you know, in deliberative democracy for Deborah Mattinson, who was went on to be Brown's pollster. So it was interesting, first of all, doing it from a you know a practitioner point of view, like seeing how it works on the ground, and then I began to look a bit, a bit more into the behavioural science behind deliberative democracy. And the, one of the reasons why, in theory, it's it's meant to work is that it gives people more time and information to come to more informed positions and allows or enables people to reflect more on the the how of their beliefs rather than the why of their beliefs. So say, for example, Ros, I was to ask you, you know, do you know how a fridge works? Chances are you're thinking yes. But if I ask you to explain to me precisely how a fridge works step by step, it's likely that you'll be on more shaky ground. So the key insight is that, you know, most of us typically believe we understand things far more precisely and coherently than we actually do. And this applies to everyday objects like a fridge, but also policies and, and you know, especially ones that we have very strong on, strong, often have strong views on like climate change, for example. And some of the research suggests that if we're asked to explain the basis of our understanding on a particular belief step by step. So for example, how a preferred policy might work in practice, not why we think it, it means that we're forced to confront the possible fragility of our beliefs and 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 the research has shown that that then often leads people to moderate their positions so i guess put more simply the more uncertain we become the more likely it is we are receptive to to an alternative view so that's the premise behind deliberative democracy i guess from a from a behavioral science perspective but i think some of the problems are around is, is is around one of them is around scaling so you know these are often even some of the largest events that might involve a thousand people so kind of citizen assembly type events are still small i guess compared to the you know the population at large and then i think another reason why they don't often work as well as we might think in in practice is that they often don't lead to real change you know afterwards there isn't a real outcome that that we actually see as a result of the deliberative democracy. And you also talk about the way we organise our constitutional arrangements, essentially, and how they can sometimes lead to more polarisation. But it's not always as simple as it seems. So in the Commons, we obviously have an adversarial chamber where Labour and the Tories sit opposite each other. But that doesn't necessarily mean, does it, that it's a more violent or adversarial chamber than than others that have a different arrangement who might sit in a horseshoe. Are there constitutional arrangements, though, that we can try and keep in place in order to counter polarisation? 
Yes, there are. So, uh, what, yeah, that was one of the surprising things. You know, I'm I'm Welsh, and one of the things that we always trumpeted about, you know, the the Senedd or the Welsh Assembly as it was, was you know that it had a, a different physical space and physical atmosphere, and that that you know maybe or the hemisphere in the European Parliament, and that would help engender different types of support. And I was, you know, when we were digging into this for the book, I was really surprised to see that that actually that didn't always help. And for example, in the US, in the Capitol building, or a, Congress and in the Senate, that actually there had until fairly recently been, you know, literally blood on the carpet. You know, it made Michael uh, Hesseltine swinging a mace around his head in the in the nineties look like small fry compared to the literal violence that had gone on in the hemisphere there. But there are other things about the constitution and process, and this is quite techy, but it's important that can help engender independence and effective scrutiny and reward for people who go outside their tribe. So um, if you look, for example, at the Commons and how select committee chairs are appointed and the fact that the government can't stitch it up in the way it used to or parties can't stitch it up. They used to nominate from the whips or from the leader's office people to go forwards. Now it's much more independent and everybody gets a vote and you can build support from outside your own party, which is why Chris Grayling is not in charge of a select committee. One of the choice lines from David Cameron's uh, autobiography, not that I'm always Cameron's biggest fan, but it says something like, Theresa Villiers made an excellent Northern Ireland secretary and Chris Grayling, he also did transport and the, the beauty in the omission of what he said there was there remarkably Chris Grayling was still being put forward to chair a select committee and he got screwed over by uh, another MP who pretty much everybody even his own side objectively thought was better Julian Lewis and, and he got it and that's important because it stops lackeys and toadies being in charge of um, scrutinizing the government and uh, encourages independent thought and things like that which sound quite techy and small can actually try and help certainly at an elite level as political scientists would call it reduce polarization but of course what we're seeing now with this government in the uk is lackeys and toadies in some cases being put into very senior positions not necessarily in government but in uh, ngos and scrutiny groups and things like that yes yeah there's there's i mean it's not the first time someone's done that right but <laughs> but it is it's a it's a real issue you look at NED appointments within government departments and things like that. yeah and and people should should think about that and you touched on a really important point actually that applies into the world of business which cognitive diversity which includes which isn't quite a synonym for political diversity Alex will get cross with me if I don't clarify that but different viewpoints generally lead to better scrutiny and yet if you talk to people in business when they talk about talk about diversity and inclusion agenda and we have to be careful because political diversity is not the same thing as as for example race or gender diversity but no one has ever really thought about it even though there's quite a lot of studies showing that it will improve the bottom line it will improve the level of scrutiny you get less fraud in those situations and better investment decisions if you have cross-party groups like that is not something that people think about and they really should and that applies almost whatever political background you're from. You have your own podcast you three called Change My Mind which is a really good idea for a podcast by the way (laughs) it basically does what it says on the tin it talks to people who've changed their mind about something and why. Do people find it difficult to come up with something? Yeah super difficult. (laughs) 
um and and you know alex mentioned earlier about how it, how it almost literally hurts to change your mind sometimes and the bits of the brain that get activated you know are, are similar to the bits that activate in when you're feeling physical pain and people find it very difficult or they will forget when they have changed their mind and be like oh no no that's what i always thought and a classic example of that actually is try finding someone now who will tell you that they have changed their mind on gay marriage even though the stats show completely that some people clearly were you know some people still are not in favor of it but because it's now become a hugely majority opinion to be supportive of that people won't admit to that being their previous view that they were anti or hesitant about it partly because they they want to fit in but also because we're we're almost programmed to forget when we have changed our minds it's really tricky what's been the most striking example of someone who we might have heard of who's who's changed their mind that you've you've spoken to Alex, do you want to? Tell, I'd go. I'd go with Derek. Or um... I was just going to say Derek. Yeah, I was going yeah, to. I was going to talk about. So Derek Black was his. His grandfather was a very senior member of the the KKK, and he he grew up in a family which had very strong beliefs in white supremacy. So he'd have reporters regularly knocking on his door. He'd, you know, his family, his mum and dad would appear on TV. They'd have kind of white supremacist intellectual thinkers, go, you know, coming around for dinner. He'd be regularly exposed to what was called scientific information, supporting those views. And when he got to, uh, he was homeschooled. So he, he had very little contact, I think, with people outside that community but when he went to university initially he was very ostracized he tried to keep his private views very private and tried to detach what he was studying from his personal life um then after a while it was someone ali cretan ran wrong it was somebody from the jewish community who reached out and invited him to dinner you know regular dinners and some people probably dropped out didn't come to the dinners but others actually you know they adopted more of an understanding mindset like what you know what is it that, that you believe and 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 why and what's led you to those beliefs and gradually over time he um yeah he began to open up and then question also actually why why did he believe what he believed and now has done a kind of full 360 reversal and actually married one of the people who attended the, the jewish shabbat dinners and campaigns against discrimination yeah and derek's quite inspiring but he does talk about how unusual his his journey was and how hard it was to follow. Another one that really sticks out and, and we remember is um, a guy called Eamon Dean. And Eamon, when he was 16, was recruited by Al-Qaeda and became a bomb maker in Afghanistan uh, over a period of time. And then at one point he was detained when he was traveling through Kuwait. And over a period of months, the Brits persuaded him to spy for them and to change sides in that way. And that was a very dramatic change of allegiance uh, with what going on. And when he talks about how they slowly, slowly did that, about how hard it was to leave his tribe and, you know, the environments that they put in for, for that to happen, it's quite powerful and persuasive. And and the real the real kicker that, that stuck with me with Eamon is I was like, great, now, so you, you did this, you know, it feels kind of important to try and help other people do this and, and maybe do de-radicalisation. And he too, like Derek, explained just how hard it was for him to walk that path and how difficult. And that he had lost a cousin who had decided that he had wanted to go and fight in Syria. And he had travelled out to Syria to try and persuade him not to and say, look, I changed my mind. You could change yours too. It's okay. And the family still love me. And he wasn't able to be effective. And I, I tell that that sort of kicker to Eamon's story because it shows just how difficult it is for people to change their mind and to admit that they've done so. Speaking of which, Ali, what have you changed your mind about? 
Uh, so I've changed my mind about all sorts of things. So one, I used to be like a witch. I was their rabble rouser in chief. Uh, and <laughs> and it was great. And I definitely feel quite different about some of the techniques that I used to use for mobilization there. I'm not sure that they were always as helpful as I, they might have been. And I used to believe I wasn't very supportive of public funding for the arts. I thought it was fairly pointless, if I'm honest with you. I didn't see it bringing much merit. Uh, you know, I, I just thought we should have big stadium gigs with the Spice Girls and Girls Aloud, who I liked. And I, I've done a complete reversal on that view. I think I can't believe I was ever that naive to think that it wasn't tremendously powerful and important for bonding and bringing people together and as an expressive outlet. Yeah, I think it's very, tremendously important that those things get funded. How about you, Alex? I knew this was going to come. Um, so for me, do you know what? I found this question really hard. I was definitely in, like many of our podcast guests, definitely in that camp of, wow, is it that I just can't remember that I've changed my mind or is it that I've actually uh, maintained the same beliefs for a long time, which is not a pleasant thought. But for me, I think one thing when I was younger, I, I definitely, definitely saw, I guess this is in the space of criminal justice, definitely saw prison as more of a deterrent and that when we should make prison really harsh and that when people go to prison, they should uh, you know, learn a lesson and it would therefore deter them from committing crime again, which is probably quite a naive belief to hold. And it was after actually reading a study by various academics on the uh, it was an evaluation of the Scared Straight program, which was designed to try and prevent or minimise young people from from committing crimes who who are at higher risk of committing crimes as they got older. And the intention behind Scared Straight, exactly as it sounds by its name, is to take young people at risk of offending into prisons, get them to meet prisoners with the idea that they will be put off for life for committing a crime. And for years, people thought this worked, and then actually they got some they got some researchers involved, did an evaluation of Scared Straight, and realised it actually had the back fire effect. So actually people who went through the programme were more likely to go on and end up in, uh, to commit a crime and then end up in prison than those who didn't. So just reading more on the evidence made me, yeah, rethink about actually is, does, you know, what, what is the benefits of prison and thinking it more as a, a tool or a mechanism for rehabilitation. So definitely not an expert on criminal justice, but that is something that I have changed my mind. I've probably softened on a bunch of other issues as well as I've got older, but writing the book, I mean, I said I was a an elected councillor for the Conservative Party where I live for four years, um, so up until 2019. And then it was shortly after that that we got the the book deal. So just the process of writing the book and researching a lot and interviewing a lot you know, on how people form their beliefs, the difficulties in changing your mind has really made me, I think, reassess and reflect on why, I, why do I identify with the Conservative Party? What is it about them? And I wouldn't say I've changed my mind or changed my identity, but it's definitely made me reflect on why. And probably I feel like less, I feel less emotionally attached, definitely, to the party than I did before writing the book. What about you, Roz? What have you changed your mind on? I knew you were going to come in with that one. <laughs> <laughs> so now you, now you have a time to think of something. What is it? <laughs> I can't, I'm trying to think of one. I've probably just smoothed it over and thought that I always thought that way. I will say that I have voted at one stage uh, in my adult life or another. I have voted for all the major parties and quite a few of the minor parties as well. So um, even, you know, uh, that that's not always kind of in a very direct way. Sometimes it was something like the London mayoralty contest. But I have always been prepared to change my party allegiance. I've never been rigid about that. So that's something I'm quite pleased about. But I, I would have to, you know, you'd have to give me a bit longer to think about uh, about something else, I'm afraid, because I was just racking my brain to think, what have I really, oh God, have I really not changed my mind? I must have done. 
it's an excellent question to ask um, people and they do, they really struggle with it, you know, and people, what's really interesting is clearly over the last two years, we haven't done much of the podcast face to face, but when we do, you can see people start physically sweating when they start talking yeah. about this question. It like yeah. super stresses them out, you know, it, it, it really does. And they really worry about the public reaction to it in a way that, you know, you, you just wouldn't get from anything else. So it is, I think it's a, a brilliant question to ask people and I wish more people when they went for example to hustings when people are standing for elections either internal or external that in the party they asked that question and more than that they thought carefully about the responses that they gave because if someone is genuinely changing their mind for a good honest reflective reason away or with you like that should probably be rewarded because it's so hard to do and so essential to try and make our democracy function better. Yeah, I have I have some work to do. But I was actually thinking as an aside, and when you were talking about uh, being a conservative, and that that in, it's ironic, really, that Boris Johnson is probably one of the most flexible politicians in terms of changing his mind and his ability to do so regularly and without penalty. And yet, you know, as Joe Swinson has pointed out, you do often face a high penalty for changing your mind. How is it that he is able to do so? That's uh, perhaps a question for another podcast. Boris often defies the laws of, of gravity and people are like, if you want to look at leadership and the cost of changing your mind, then and he may or may not be a, a good guest for you guys to get on a guy called Archie Brown at Oxford, wrote a fantastic book on strong leadership and what strong leadership is and about it being able to delegate and flexibility and remarkably for me, highlighted Margaret Thatcher on the issues of foreign affairs as being very flexible, actually, when she came to Gorbachev, because she didn't know anything about him. So she went and listened to experts, which helped frame her opinion. So it was well informed to start with rather than being instinctive and tied to her identity. But yeah, if listeners are are curious about that, I can highly recommend, well, obviously our books, brilliant, but Archie Brown's as well. Fantastic. Polls Apart is published by Random House Business. We hope you've enjoyed this podcast. If you did, you can help us to reach more people by forwarding the episode link to three friends or tweet it to them with a the hashtag BunkerUp. Get them to send us their feedback. It's really useful. If you enjoy The Bunker, you can help us keep going by backing us on the crowdfunder Patreon. Search Patreon Bunker Podcast to find out how to get the show early and without ads, plus lots of extra benefits. I'm Ros Taylor. Thanks for listening. Join us next time for another Bunker Daily. The Bunker Daily was presented by Roz Taylor. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelena Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production.